Welcome to Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. And these podcasts are reasonably relaxed conversations with leading architects and a range of other construction professionals just to shed a light, if you like, on professional issues relating to the practice of architecture. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Smith, partner in Timothy Smith and Jonathan Taylor Architects, one of the court's best practices formed in the last 10 years according to the Architecture Foundation. So before we start about your practice, let's have a chat about you, the individual, Tim Smith, the man. So can you just introduce yourself, explain about you and maybe what your practice does? Uh, yes, hello. My name is Timothy Smith. I'm part of the imaginatively titled Timothy Smith and Jonathan Taylor Architects. And I've been teaching here at Kingston for 10 years, firstly as a design tutor and for the last six as a course leader. And Jonathan and I set up the practice 10 years ago now, after a couple of years of working together in a sort of ad hoc capacity and doing projects on the side of previous employments. And we also studied together prior to that, so we've known each other a long time. Jonathan worked for Adam Richards Architects for, I think, about three years. And I was working in a, a sort of freelance capacity for Beaver Mull Architects, practice of uh, Robert Mull and Katrina Beaver. And I was kind of working quite independently from the office with my laptop and they were based in Cambridgeshire and also down at London Met and I was based in London. So I I set up as a sole trader in order to do that freelance work and then when opportunities came in to do small jobs on the side, kitchen extensions and bits and pieces, I had the company set up and insurance to do that stuff. So why? So you weren't employed, why was that? Why did you take that option? They were a very small practice. I was not going to be at their registered practice base. It was convenient for them and it was it was convenient for me at the time as well. I think actually initially I was also employed by London Met to do some, a few bits and pieces. So at the very beginning I had sort of two client entities uh, to work for and their periods of, uh, they were my major client through that time but it was important in order for that setup to maintain legitimacy that I did take on other jobs, so uh, yeah, I took on other clients. You're proposing to start a classical architecture master's here at Kingston, mm-hmm. you teach it anyway within the master's studio already, so what got you into that? Uh, essentially, when we set up our practice, the offices we admired, people like Carusus Injun, Surgeon Bates, Aru, Peter Merkley, were all referring to classicism as part of the the references that they would use in creating their work. And we were very interested in what they would do if they just went for it and did a classical project. And I remember having some pub-based arguments with friends who were very anti-Quinlan Terry. There must have been something in the news and one of the Star Wars type debates. And intellectually, we didn't see any problem with Quinlan Terry doing what Quinlan Terry does and that it was important to separate um, the quality of work from stylistic or sort of ideological determinism of it so with those two things happening and setting up a practice and thinking about what our work should be and the you know, coming out of the education in the noughties as we did you've been taught that sort of anything is possible really and that doesn't give you a great deal of reassurance when you set up a practice and start thinking about well, what should this kitchen extension look like and you get asked to do a house what should this house look like we didn't have a frame of reference or a set of principles to rely on and with these convers- with this hot historic reference suddenly being available to us and with this kind of intellectual position of, well, why can't people do 
classical work. We sort of, well, classicism offers us the principles that lead to all of the things we love about architecture. So when you say principles, mm. obviously principles has two meanings here, doesn't it? Foundational beliefs as well as a programmatic structure that might develop from that. So are you saying that your principles were, were invented for a particular pragmatic reason or, you, or, or were they actually foundational principles in the way that you saw architecture? Um, I think we saw a set of, I often say principles instead of rules, because uh, criticism of classicism is simply simply the application of rules. It's all given to you, isn't it? But rules is fine, actually. Um, as soon as you start trying to apply these rules to a real build design project, a problem, you have to exercise judgment in the application of those rules. And buildings that we really enjoyed had a sense of order, relief, uh, legible tectonic, they communicated both to the layperson and the, the expert on different levels, they had the capacity to communicate on various different levels, and we felt like that was quite a powerful tools for, for making architecture which was practical, beautiful, that the layperson could understand and feel love for, rather than feel, feel um, condescension from. And that's what we sort of felt about lots of you know, architects speak, about iconic buildings going up around London, all sorts of funny shapes and no sense of human scale. Um, it's felt like, you know, there's a way of sort of slightly sidestepping where do we go with current architectural culture, step slightly outside of it and carry okay. on. Okay, so you just criticised architecture speak, but just a moment ago you used the phrase legible tectonic. <laughs> so do you want to give us a shorthand of what that is? You can see what's holding the thing up. That'll do, that'll do. Beam, Good. Beams, posts. If only people said that more often. Right, so in terms of this, the, the, you just mentioned the stylistic element of classicism uh, or classical architecture or the, or the rules of class, classical architecture. Again, do you, have, do you frown upon people who think that classical architecture is a style or do you believe that is the case? I, d I don't really mind um, and I'm not sure that I have or can fully engage with the very involved semantic arguments about precisely what a style is. I think that classicism is more than that. I mean, it's more than applying embellishment to a building to make it look like something classical. It's more fundamental than that. And that the, um, the principles of organisation, composition, how you set out a facade, how you organise rooms, how you go about designing from the important spaces to the lesser spaces and the lesser spaces until you've got a harmonious assemblage of those things. I think classicism offers you all of that stuff, and, and that is not stylistic. On the other hand, we admire you know, Victorian architects who could turn their hands to any style. You know, a good architect, it seems to me, ought to be able to design a good modernist building. I certainly feel like I could. A decent Gothic revival building and a decent classical one. That's the portfolio of choice. Yeah. It'd be interesting just to quickly go back and make a couple of statements about what got you into architecture in the first place. First principles, not, not from when you were a child, but you know something which uh, inspired you to take up architecture. And the second part, I suppose, is you studied in Edinburgh and mm -hmm. London met, and really as to whether those were foundational influences on your further career and your, on your studio work. Mm -hmm. Somehow I got the idea of being an architect quite early on. I think I was doing GCSEs. My school then advised me to do maths and physics for A-level if I wanted to do architecture, which I did. And it put me off architecture because I thought if 
I was going to embark on seven years of something that was anything like A-level physics. I wasn't interested. So I did an art foundation course. Everything I was looking at in that course was architectural. I found out partly through a meeting with the head of department at Leeds, where I was doing foundation, that they didn't need maths and physics. They were much more interested in the fact that I'd done art in an art foundation. And so, and, and, and from that moment on, I haven't looked back, really. I feel far more creative with a brief to work to. And the fact that it doesn't require me like art does, as I understand it, to be self-motivated creatively. I respond problem-solved and have um, a creative trajectory that sort of that helps with the various projects and problems that come along. Doing physics or not doing physics is very unlikely to constrain you in your chosen field. Anyway, back to Edinburgh. Uh, Edinburgh Edinburgh was, uh, we went to Edinburgh College of Art, which uh, had very low UCAS tariffs, but interviewed and and looked at portfolios of work. And it was an art environment that I really, really enjoyed. In Scotland, the course was a four-year BA. So it it ran to the same three-year, year-out, two-year structure as English courses, but you didn't get your degree until after the fourth year. So did my three years. I went to Switzerland for my year out. And then I came back for my fourth year. And by then, fifth year was a one-year part two. And hardly anyone moved from school to school. Most of my colleagues just wanted to get it over with and get out to work. And I was more precious about my last year than that. Knew at that point I didn't want to stay in Edinburgh, so I moved to London. And London schools didn't understand the difference in the Scottish system. They didn't see why I wanted to join a two-year part two course halfway through. I didn't see why, as a pretty strong student I should do an extra year of my studies so I went to various places and it was easier in some than others and it was particularly easy at London Met they were very open-minded and I simply went along during the first week sat with a member of staff told them what I'd done in my fourth year at Edinburgh they ticked various things off on the list of their modules and module descriptors and that was it so not that London Met automatically springs to mind when you think about classical architecture particularly but having made that decision as you just explained to turn your hand to this style as we should call it of architecture does that now influence your daily life are you a you know greek scholar are you traveling to italy on your holidays is this become your life i'm not a greek scholar i know very little of the classics it's purely an architectural interest and it's not something that i learned in school at all or in architecture school. But I think in my education, well, certainly in my education, all of my design briefs were buildings. They were quite practical courses. And uh, not so much at Edinburgh, but in in London, at London Met, historical reference was used very much. So that opened up sort of everything pre-Corb to me, which had been confined only to history lectures at Edinburgh. So, yeah, it's fundamentally an, an architectural interest and where we think we've got something to say or where we think that there's potential in what we're doing is that we we are educated in the time we are educated. We very much like a lot of the contemporary architecture that's happening, but we also are interested in the possible architecture that comes from an interest in classicism. We're not Francis Terry or George Somers Smith. They're very supportive of what we're doing and we're very admiring of what they're doing, but they come with very different backgrounds to us. But we're also not... Yeah, Surgeon Bates, Bruce is injured. Somewhere in the middle, I feel like, you know, in understanding both camps, that we can hopefully capitalise on an increasing debate that's happening among, and level of respect that's happening across what used to be the style was. It doesn't feel like it's that anymore. Why? 
I suppose I didn't mean to suggest that we were purely pragmatic and would turn our hands to anything, but we do admire those architects of the, the Victorian age who, who could do if necessary. And when style went with a certain type of building, and so if you're asked to do a bank, it was probably neoclassical. If you're asked to do a house, it was probably some sort of arts and crafts or possibly Gothic revival, something like that. I think we're sort of ideologically committed to finding a classical language of architecture that doesn't have the baggage, that, that sort of answers some of the questions that came up over the last couple of decades about classicism. Does it have to be really expensive? No, it doesn't. Can it be built in contemporary, using contemporary techniques and within contemporary regulations and everything? Yes, of course it can. You can answer all these questions by looking back through the history of architecture. It's not all grand palaces that are classical. It might be relatively modest London terraces, for example, which are only marginally classical. Palladio builds columns in a different way in the Veneto, in brick and stucco, than, than architects in other parts of Italy where they're solid marble. Classicism has always shifted and adapted to changing economic and, and um, geographic contexts. But just by nature of our background, by nature of our ages to some extent, we are, we're not turning against the modernists who, who we admire. We like good architecture of all, of all types, uh, but we feel like we can sort of speak to each side. On your website, you say, we consider that it's possible to have a creative modern architecture with traditional virtues, a respect for history and a freedom from cant. Balance, proportion, character, intrigue and wit are central to our work. So I was first of all wondering whether that had anything to do with critical regionalist, Peter Frampton-esque kind of approach to the way that you maybe approach these things turning your hand to, to both sides, or marrying both sides, maybe. Do you want to talk us through that? The second part, I suppose, is authenticity. question of authenticity as to whether that plays in your, in your orbit, as to understanding what is, what is an authentic building and what is a, an authentic one. Uh, that, that statement owes a lot to Gavin Stamp in his introduction to the Reba's publication on McMorrin and Whitby, and he's a hint at what I was just talking about, which is a continuing thread you know, re-establishing that continued tradition of, of classicism. We weren't thinking about critical regionalism. It's not something I know a great deal about, but that I consider to be a, a critical position on the dominance of modernism in the 20th century, that it's fundamentally modernist architects uh, making concerted effort to the local, or to, to combining modernist principles with local vernaculars. And uh, So I suppose in, in some senses there is a similarity in the adaptability of classicism to, to local cultures and climates and whatnot. Okay, but do you have a view on what is meant by an authentic Palladian building or an authentic building? Hmm. Um, it's, again, not something we because, talk... Because there's, there's a tendency to pastiche yeah. in, a lot of, in a lot of classic, classical, classicist... Yeah, we don't talk, we don't talk about authenticity, but we do defend the pastiche intellectually. I mean, the reinvention, the reinterpretation, the reuse of familiar forms, and the continued use of the architectural principles that we admire could easily be condemned by other architects as a form of pastiche. And we don't I suppose we don't really see pastiche as necessarily negative. A bad new classical building is as bad as a bad new modernist building, vice versa, and you know, and, and, and good examples of those are, are equally wonderful. Architects get 
terribly worried about the idea of pastiche, but ah, oh, it's a big one, isn't it? All right. In terms of classical architecture, classical virtues, classical rules, I was wondering whether they pose any particular challenges in terms of the way you practice. So, as we speak, there's this big furore about Roger Scruton, you know, the arch-traditionalist, getting some stick about what that might mean for modern architecture. We're not going to go into that area. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like you meeting regulatory standards or contemporary policy initiatives, do you end up compromising some of your classical ideals? I don't think so. Uh, it would be difficult to design a new public building, I think, with a grand staircase out the front, uh, which is a, an architectural element that lots of older classical buildings have, but that'd be equally true of the Farnsworth House or, or the Neue National Gallery. You just don't have steps at the front of your big public buildings anymore. You have level democratic access for all. It's perfectly possible. Um, I, I, I suppose I'm, I'm partly I'm sorry, you know, for every classical building with a grand staircase, you can probably think of a modernist building that has a staircase of sorts. If you're simply going to avoid having stairs into your entrance foyer, then um, that's a design constraint you work with. Um, I, I mean, most of designing a contemporary classical building is exactly the same as designing a contemporary any sort of building. So you, don't, you don't think anything's lost in that? You just you think that's a reasonable compromise for modern use? I think if one felt that it was absolutely essential to stick with the staircases, to have a grand staircase or some change in level from street to entrance foyer we would have to deal with it in the same way that any architect would need to deal with it. It's very pleasant to step up off the street into a building, whatever style building that is. So if you do that you, you'd need some kind of level access you know, to provide a very similar experience. Okay, look, I'm not going to leave that point. Yeah. But we're, we're going to talk about um, the important aspects of professional practice, uh, which we spoke, spoke about earlier, even before we started this podcast. And you raised the issue of competence as a general overview of, the, of mm. what you do. Yes, so that you weren't actually saying that you had a specific focus, interest, specialism, other than the fact that you were supremely confident in your competence, which is good. <laughs> so for the podcast, let me just uh, record... Section 9 of the Architects Act 1997 is concerned with the competence to practice and in addition Standard 2 of the Architects Code states that architects are expected to keep their knowledge and skills relevant to their professional work up to date and be aware of the content of guidelines issued by the board from time to time. So my question to you, which uh, you have to excuse the mundane nature of this after our grand narrative, is how do you and your practice, how do you go about maintaining your competence to practice? That sounded quite scary, you know, reading, reading clauses to me. We undertake CPD, as required by our validating bodies, and we ensure that we're engaged in professional life of, of the architect. And that's helped in various, actually quite, well perhaps not mundane ways, but um, you know, our practice is based in London, where there are lots of other practices. It enables us to go to lots of lectures, so um, things that aren't, you don't get a CPD certificate for, but quite often sort of historical, theoretical lectures, interviews with other architects, things like that, run by people like the Architecture Foundation, the RBA, the Royal Academy, various others. And the lectures themselves, the networking afterwards, the chats in the pub afterwards with colleagues, all ensures 
that formally and informally we're up to date. So we'll, you know, we'll, we have chats with our student colleagues who work in very different practices and they'll be telling us about things that don't apply to our practice because we're not building big schools or we're not doing big housing projects. So that helped for us to understand the regulatory context, even if we don't need to understand lots of the specifics of those things. And then for things like the registered CPD, sometimes we use the RBA's CPD days and they, with it, they set up a lot of CPD sessions and you, you literally sign up for the ones you want in a day. You get a lot of it done in bulk. Or we, we get people in, certified providers, to talk about things that we can see are coming up on the horizon. So it might be something technical relating to a particular project. We're using particular you know, basement conversion. We want to update our knowledge on tanking or precasting concrete, something like that. Since we live in an age where in order to be believed everything has to be documented, which is a very odd way of uh, demonstrating trustworthiness with the professions, mm. but the ARB and the RIBA require that you have these systems of records, not records of your CPD provision, but that you evaluate your competence level. So you know, in some ways there has to be a process within a practice where you work out what is the most instrumentally beneficial for you. So again, do you have a, a process of, of doing that? Do you have a system in place? Yeah, I mean, CPD is filed, uh, kept in calendars and on digital file. Um, we have regular practice meetings and while they will be based around the projects, live projects in the office and resourcing them and such like, they will also involve us discussing with one another at what stage the project is, what the risks are coming up, uh, what's going well, and, and planning for those things. And so quite often that CPD or other things, QA, information gathering, the evaluation of what we know already is that evaluation takes place as part of those conversations, I think rather than a specific exercise of, shall we evaluate what we've learned in the last few months? It's always specific to projects. Okay. And do you have any readings that you swear by? Um, Apart from my articles in the Architectural Review, of course. Your articles in the Architectural Review are the absolute core, Austin. Okay, thank you. Uh, the legal columns in uh, AJ and the Reba Journal are very useful. And actually, Reba Chartered Membership for the Practice has been really useful to us. You get a certain number of hours allocation for calling legal the legal helpline things like that and being prepared to ask actually i think it's really important even if you feel it's a you know it's we're a, we're a tiny practice you can feel that your issues are, are petty but they're issues of legal principle so whether it's an argument about ten thousand pounds or a million pounds the legal principle is there and there are people at the end of that phone line who can help you with that there's a lot of a lot of professional judgment involved and this is what my part three taught me really was not loads and loads of specific things but these are broadly the things that could get you in trouble and these are the ways that you can find the information you need ask the people you need to ask think about what the risks are ahead and how they might pertain to you and I think it's important as a small practice to be aware of what's out there on a bigger scale and how it's relevant to you so you know, we don't specifically evaluate the stuff that we're going through and maybe Foster and partners do. They will have a completely different QA structure, but we still need to be aware of the types of QA that might be applicable and, and make sure we cover things. Cracking answer. What for you is the connection between academia and practice? Um, the, the slightly dumb answer is that 
all of the architects we admire teach and all of the teachers we admire practice and obviously in doing that ourselves we can we can see why you get to explore a different question each year with a different set of students you get to meet lots of other academics we get to engage in the life of this department um, conversations like this wouldn't happen if we didn't teach and certainly it nourishes the culture of our office and it certainly keeps us more alert and more ambitious likewise I think our practice experience when we're coming in to teach students we might be coming from a meeting on site or with a client and things we tell them about practice and the conversations we have are absolutely urgent they're completely critical completely contemporary because we're doing it and that feels like a really important link in architecture probably in all sorts of fields but um, architecture is the thing we know and it seems very important. What do you think is the biggest problem that you face in your practice? Aside from all the usual ones the planning system has been a huge problem recently and I'm sure that it's been more difficult negotiating planning in the last five years than it was in the first five years of our practice. It might be that the projects have got a bit bigger a bit more complex but the lack of genuine communication and consultation between us and the local authorities leads to a completely adversarial environment. No positive conversation about how we might work together to make a better built environment, to help our clients to to build the things they want to build and to contribute to the built environment more widely, Um, and simply about trying to negotiate your way through a kind of a legal maze. And that's led to projects that we should be complete now, still being in planning. Huge expense for our clients. It means that clients don't want to go ahead with things because they don't want to put that financial commitment into this battle. And the thing we need to get more projects is to have some complete, to have them documented, published, to have people talking about them, visiting them, using them. And while things are stuck in planning, that's not happening. Okay, so where do you see your practice in the next couple of years? It's very hard to say. Hopefully we might be on site with a couple of things we're currently in planning. Next year looks like it could be a good one for us. We've got uh, three or four interesting projects on the go at the moment. Something just started, at various stages, start, something just started on site. A couple of things just started on site. Some planning resolution arriving with another project. So hopefully 2019 might be a bit of a stepping stone, but I'm sure John O will, will confirm that I say that every year. Perfect. Well, best wishes for the future. Thanks very much, Tim Smith. Thanks so much for sharing your experiences. My name's Austin Williams. Please sign up for future podcasts and have a listen to our archive of interviews. If you have any questions, please get in touch with me on austin.williams at kingston.ac.uk. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Professional Practice Podcasts.